once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. We are really good at whining. No matter how good we have it, it's never good enough. Jeff Norris, Director of Young Adults and Families, joins the series A Glorious Grace, Foundations of Grace, with this message entitled Grace for Grumblers, which covers Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. If you've been with us, you know that we've been in this series called A Glorious Grace. And Randy has led us off the first three weeks, and he started last week a two-part sermon uh, called The God of Grace. And so we're taking a little bit of a break in between the first part and the second part. I'll still speak to grace this week and talk about that, um, but it's an in-between where Randy will pick up again with his part two next week. So let me pray for us, and then we'll jump in. Father, thank you so much that you are indeed holy, that there is no one like you. There is none besides you. You are high and lifted up. You are set apart, and you are good. And Lord, um, we pray that during this time this morning, that you'd speak to us, that you'd soften our hearts, that you would use your scriptures and the words of my mouth, may they be yours, to give us ears to hear, to give us eyes to see the beauty of Jesus, to give us understanding in every way, that we may draw near to you, that we may see the God of the universe. For some of us, we pray that would happen for the very first time. So God, as we consider your grace poured over us through Jesus, would you have your way with us this morning? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I need you to own something with me. I don't want to be alone in this, okay? We're all grumblers. I know I am. I'm assuming you are. It's it's the default of the human condition. To grumble, to complain, to be discontent, to be dissatisfied. Even when circumstances are great, we will find things to grumble about. Maybe we don't say it verbally, but it's there. It's in our hearts. And this is, for, for, this is about us from the very beginning of, of our lives. You just, if, you, if you doubt, is this true? Is this really a part of our fabric? Then just hang around some kids for a little while. Two things happened this week that were just awesome, and and they weren't awesome, but they were awesome because they're great for illustrations for my sermon. Um, So this week, just this week, and I asked my kids, I said, do I have approval to share these stories? I won't use your name, and people will just have to figure out which kid said what. So just this week, my, um, my family and I, we were trying to get away, and I do a little bit of time on the lake, just family time, and we were out there for a little while, but... Before long, and this has happened a few times this summer, not necessarily at the lake, but at the pool and different things we've tried to do. It's been such a rainy summer that rain has ruined a lot. Camp, you know what I'm talking about, right? Um, and so we're out there, and the storm comes in quick, and we're having to scramble and get back to the dock. We're on this boat, and we're trying to get up to the car, get everything off the boat, into the car. It winds swirling around. Things are crazy. Kids are freaking out. We get in the car just before it begins to rain. And one of my kids, in all sincerity, deeply troubled, says, why does God keep doing this? And I chuckled and said, I don't know. But the better story that happened this week was actually two nights ago. 
So two nights ago, I, I've, been, I've had the kids to myself this weekend. My wife, Rachel, has been away at a conference. and um, So I've, I've had the four to myself, which dads, you know what that means. Lots of pizza and drive throughs and movies and ice cream and do everything that dads do when mom is away. So I had taken them through the drive through at McDonald's, which for them is a treat. We don't do that very often. If you love McDonald's and eat it all the time, I'm not judging you. Um, and so we had, we'd gotten McDonald's, we'd gone back to the house, we've got a movie going on Netflix, there's stuff in their face, this is, we're having a grand time. Power flickers and goes out. Comes back on about 20 seconds later, we're like, okay, cool. But when it went out, it tripped up something with our cable pr provider and we have no internet, no TV. Y'all. <laughs> you don't know it, but a little mini apocalypse hit my house Friday night. Complete meltdown, complete. I mean, within seconds, and one of my kids, who will go unnamed, with great disdain and, and sheer panic, through tears, says, how long will this last? <laughs> I'm not kidding. I'm not exaggerating. That was, that happened. Which certainly cued the dad lecture for me. Well, when I was growing up, we had to... We had to look out the window and use our imagination. <laughs> so, but it got, I was like, this is perfect. This, this proves the point, right? We, we grumble. And it's certainly, I see it in my kids all the time. It's one of the things that we talk about with our kids all the time. Hey, is there anything to complain about here? I don't think so. But yet we do it. I mean, I'm thinking about just the just week before last. I'm driving to the church for work, and uh, there's a th theme of rain. Apparently, I really don't like rain. But um, it starts raining, and I'm in my car, and I'm like, I don't say anything, but in my heart, I'm like, are you kidding? More rain? Seriously? We've, we've had enough, God. We really, I mean, rain's good. Um, and then it dawns on me. I'm like complaining. I'm, I have this really grumbling spirit about me while I'm in this crazy cool machine called a car that keeps me dry from the rain while taking me down the road 55 miles an hour while also playing my favorite song while also circulating for me cool air so that I stay comfortable and I go and I'm complaining 100 years ago like people would actually be getting wet when they went somewhere in the rain I'm spoiled there's a comedian, his name is Louis C.K. He's not a theologian. <laughs> I would encourage you not to look up his videos. Um, but he is insightful. And he kind of hit the, the, the stage, if you will, of, of pop culture many years ago when he did this bit, a clean bit, on Conan O'Brien, the Conan O'Brien show. And he says this, these are his words, not mine, don't get mad at me, but he says, he says, we are currently a part of the, of the most spoiled and worthless generation in the history of the world. He said, we have everything is amazing. Everything is amazing, but no one's happy. Everything's at our fingertips, but everyone wants more. And he gets into this theme of how we just complain about everything. We grumble about everything. He, he starts talking about, like, think, consider air flight. He said, I mean, like, You'll hear people say, oh, man, I had a layover, and it took me 12 hours to get from L.A. to, to New York. And he's like, oh, oh, really? That's a trip that used to take 30 years, and when you got there, half the people you went with were not there anymore. They died on the way. 
And then he says, what happened next? Did you, did you, did you fly through the air like a bird? Were you, were you in the sky in a chair? Like, think about what you get to participate in and you're complaining. I'm complaining. Louis, uh, Louis C.K. Was, was right. We are spoiled. But he missed it in another way. This is nothing new. This is not a millennial generation thing. It's not, a, it's not anything with what's going on. Maybe we, it's more exasperated because of social media. I call Twitter just the, the avenue through which people grumble. Um, so we see it more, but it's been there from the beginning. I'll show you. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to take you back to the book of Exodus. I'm going to recap a story for you. It's a really common story. If you've been in and around church, you've heard it perhaps hundreds of times. I want to give it to you maybe in a little different way this morning. And it's the story of the Exodus. It's, it's the story of where God's people have been enslaved as slaves in Egypt for 400 years. They had gotten there because Joseph, at the end of the book of Genesis, was a Hebrew. He was an Israelite. He was the son of Jacob who had received the promise from his father Isaac, who had received the promise from his father Abraham that God would make a great nation out of these people. And Joseph ends up as the leader of Egypt, even as a Hebrew. But 400 years have passed and all that's been forgotten. And now they're slaves and they're wondering, is the promise gone? And God shows up and he says, it's time to get my people out of Egypt. And I'm going to lift up and raise up a guy named Moses, who is an Israelite. He is a guy that is from the... Uh, the people of God, but he grew up, interestingly enough, in the household of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And he calls Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. And when he does that, he, he begins to soften the heart of Pharaoh, which was hard. In a very interesting way, he, God knows that Pharaoh will not let the people go. And he even says that God himself hardened his heart so that God could be more glorified. But he, he does it by bringing 10 plagues. Now go into the story with me. Imagine, if you will, you're, you're walking down to Ch uh, the Chattahoochee and you walk up to the Chattahoochee and it's not water, it's blood. You'd freak out. This is exactly what happened in the first plague. The, the, the primary water source for all of Egypt, the main water source for all of Egypt, and all of its tributaries, the lakes, everything around it, blood. So much blood in the land of Egypt that even the boats that were made of wood began to soak the boats up, as the, uh, the, the blood up, as the scriptures say. They couldn't drink the water. People were dying of thirst. Stayed that way for seven days. And that day and time, for us, we go get some bottled water. They didn't have that option. At the end of that plague, Pharaoh says, hey, that was cool, but no. People can't go. So God says, okay, I'll send a second plague. Frogs. Frogs, you know, frogs are interesting. I, I look at a frog and I go, I should be able to hold that. It doesn't bite. It's not a snake. It's like I should be able to hold. My son loves catching frogs and things like this. And he doesn't, I mean, he'll, he'll touch all those critters. I, I hate touching a frog. I freak out. They're slimy. They're gross. Scripture says that there were so many frogs in this plague that no matter what you tried to do, whether you tried to 
prepare food or eat breakfast or take a bath or go for a walk. Everywhere you went, frogs were there and on you all the time. At the end of this one, Pharaoh actually kind of hesitates a little bit and he says, uh, you, you might, and then he changes his mind. He says, no, 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 you're not going. So God says, okay, third plague, gnats. We know what gnats are, right? The little bitty tiny flies that love to just drive you crazy around your ear and in your eyes. You get about halfway through down south of Georgia, the southern part of Georgia, and it's like suddenly there's the gnat line. And they're everywhere. Imagine that times 10 whatever gajillion. Because this is what it says. It says that all the dust of the earth in Egypt turned to gnats. All the dust. Gnats everywhere so thick and so extreme that you couldn't take a breath without swallowing a gnat. And still Pharaoh says, no, your people cannot go. God sends another plague. He ups the ante. He says, not tiny little bugs. Let's go with bigger ones. Flies. You know, in the history of my life, I've never heard one person say, man, I love flies. Could you bring more flies into my house or my life? I would really enjoy that. Nobody has this little aquarium and fills it with flies. Look at those flies. Flies are nasty. They carry disease. And the scripture says that there were so many swarms of flies in the land of Egypt that things began to deteriorate. And life, as the Egyptians know it, was completely altered. Still, Pharaoh says, no, you may not go. God continues with the plagues. The next one he sends is the death of all the livestock in the land. Now, this would have been huge. This would have been uh, part of their food source. This was a huge part of their labor force. Although the Hebrews were their slaves, they used livestock to get done many of the things that they had to get done. And mind you, all these plagues are happening to all the people of Egypt, but in Goshen, which is this one little fertile area out, uh, that's a kind of a part of Egypt, where the, that's where the Hebrews live. And none of these things were happening to the Hebrews, to the Israelites, to God's people. So the livestock in Goshen don't die, but all the livestock and all of Egypt are diseased and die. Pharaoh still says, you may not go. Next plate. Boils. Imagine this. If you don't know what, yeah, that dude was screaming. You, you heard that. Imagine, I mean, every person, it says that every person in Egypt, from child to adult, began to break out with boils all over their bodies. These sores that would bubble up and cause intense pain, where you're in agony all day, every day. And even after that, Pharaoh's heart is still hardened and he says, no. So God sends the seventh plague, hail. Hail, like we know it, drops of ice falling from the sky, but the scripture says that this was the largest hail that anyone had ever seen, and then with it were flames of fire. Now we may say, well, that was lightning. Scripture seems to indicate that it was probably more than what we know as lightning today. Literally flames of fire coming with these large chunks of ice. And it destroyed the land. All the crops were destroyed. All the buildings, many of the buildings were, were crippled because of this hail. And even still, Pharaoh says no. Eighth plague. Locusts. You see how God went from gnat, tiny, to fly a little bigger, to locust, oh my gosh, that is a big, nasty fly. Huge, big wings, gross locust, kind of like the, the Georgia cicada. 
loud chirping noises. The Bible says that there were so many locusts in the land that you couldn't even see the ground. So every step you took when you went somewhere, you're crunching locusts. And it ate everything. The locusts ate everything. Anything that was left living after the hail came was destroyed by the locusts. And even still, Pharaoh would not let God's people go. So God sends the ninth plague, darkness. Now imagine, if you will, being in a place where it's so dark for three consecutive days that you can't see your hand in front of your face. And here's what happens with darkness. At first you go, okay, this is not too bad, but darkness begins to bring panic out of us because we begin to think, what if the light never comes? What if the sun is gone? How will we live? We have to have the sun to survive. Our plants won't grow. What, what's going to happen here? And panic begins to set in, and it certainly did for the people of Egypt. And even still, Pharaoh says no. So God brings the last and final plague, the one that would soften the heart of Pharaoh. He takes the firstborn child in the house on every household of Egypt. And this is a story you've probably heard of before called the Passover, where he instructs his people, the Israelites, to take the blood of a lamb and put it over the post, the doorposts of their houses and cover their doorposts so that the angel of death, when he sweeps through the camp, would not take the children of Israel. And when Pharaoh sees all the death in the land and his own child dies, he finally says, that's enough, you may go. So Moses gets the people together and he tells them the good news and they begin to make their way out of Egypt and it's not far before they're moving towards the Red Sea, towards Canaan, towards the land that God has called them to, that Pharaoh says, what have I done? I had, a, had a, basically almost a million people who were slaves and we've lost them. We've lost our labor force and we've got to go get them. So he gets 600 of his best chariots and all of his army together to come after God's people. God's people are approaching the Red Sea and they are starting to see off in the distance on the hillside coming over the hill, Pharaoh and his army, and they're seeing the sea before them and they think they're stuck. And God had been leading his people with this cloud by day, this fire by night, and the scripture says it's kind of this mysterious cloud, dark, fiery thing, and it was the spirit of the Lord, it was the angel of the Lord. And he had been leading his people in the front, but then when they get to the Red Sea, he moves this cloud around to the back of his people to protect them all night long from Pharaoh and his, his armies that they can't get to him. Now while he's doing that, he does the greatest miracle in the story, and as you've heard before, he splits the Red Sea so that God's people walk across on dry land. And when they get to the other side, Pharaoh and his army, the cloud is removed, they go into the sea thinking the walls will stay up for them, and they crash down on them. And Israel is free. No more enemies. No more slavery. It's a great story, and it's one that certainly speaks to the grandeur and the sovereignty and the power of God. But I left a part out. You know what, you know what the Israelites did when they got to the Red Sea? They complained. They got to the Red Sea and they saw Pharaoh's army coming. And you know, you think about it, you go, Think about what you just saw for the last however many days that the plagues happened. You, you are aware that you serve a God who can control nature in every single way. That it's nothing for him to speak the word and it happens. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you think he's going to take care of you? 
but they freak out. They get to the Red Sea and they say, Moses, were the graves in Egypt not good enough for you that you would lead us out into the wilderness so that we may die here? And Moses responds and he says, I love this. He says, you just need to be silent. In other words, he says, shut up and watch the hand of the Lord bring your salvation today. And at that point, Moses raises up his staff and the waters part. But get this, they get to the other side and it may have been the next day, it's the next chapter in Exodus. You know what they do? They grumble. They're thirsty. They've just watched these 10 plagues, this powerful, majestic, awesome God who controls nature. And they're worried that he can't give them water. And so they grumble and they say to Moses again, Moses, what are we going to do? You brought us out here to die. And God gives them water. And you know what happened next? They complain and grumble again. The next chapter... They're hungry. You've brought us out here to die. Just broken record. God gives them manna from the sky. Now, you may, you may be like me, and you may say, you know what? Gosh, those people are really stupid. I mean, if I had seen all that, if I had seen those ten plagues and I'd watched what God was doing, and certainly if I had seen the, the sea, I mean, for crying out loud, we're talking about a sea spilling open. I mean, surely I would trust him for water and food and I wouldn't grumble. I say this as lovingly as I know how to say it. Yes, you would. And I would too. And here's why. It's it's not so much about circumstantial things. It's a heart issue. The reason you and I would grumble too if we were in their shoes is because our heart struggle is the same as theirs. And it's this. We struggle with taking our eyes off ourselves long enough to see the grace of God at work. We become so self-consumed and so self-focused that we miss the grandeur of grace, God's grace, all around us, all in our stories, all in the redemptive story of what God has been doing from the beginning of the history of time. We miss it because we're so, our eyes are so focused on ourselves. Why do we grumble? If we begin to dig through the layers of, yeah, we grumble because we're not happy and we're dissatisfied and those kind of things, if we try to get down to the bedrock, I think it's this. I think one of the primary reasons that we grumble is because we we operate out of this default religious framework. And I'm talking Christians do this. Those who understand that this is not how God operates, we still default to this because it's just how we're hardwired. And it's this. We say this, we say, if there is a God, which if you're a Christian, you believe there is, but if there is a God, then he is good. He must be good. And if he's good, then he owes me good things. And ultimately, here's the bedrock. He owes me good things because I'm good. And so we operate in this performance-driven religious framework where it says, look, I'm not a bad person. I know Randy has hit on this last couple of weeks, but I want to press in just a little bit more on this. I'm, I'm not a bad person. And God owes me. I mean, look at, look at all that I'm doing for him. I mean, I'm a preacher. He owes me. God owes me good health because, I mean, look at the service that I do for him. God owes me obedient children because 
I'm teaching them about him. God owes me. And we begin to get this rights mentality with God based on our morality meter, our goodness meter. And even though we know it's all by grace, this is what we default to. And what we have to do whenever we begin to operate in that way And for some of us who may be in the room, you've thought of religion this way your whole entire life and you didn't know there was an alternative. You've lumped all religions into the same camp, which is try to be better, try to be good, and ultimately if you're good enough, the God, whoever he is, will have mercy on you on the final day. As long as your good outweighs the bad. And when you get to the Bible, when you get to the gospel of grace through Jesus Christ, you see something totally, entirely different. Something so radical and different from any other religion in the world that you go, this either has to be from God, because it certainly cannot be from man. Man would not make this up. The way that men operate is always performance. The way human men and women work is it's always performance. If we're going to build a religious system, it's always going to be, what do I have to do to get there? So when we begin to see a picture of the gospel, of what, what is required to get to God, we go, what? That's weird. I, I don't have a category for that. And the category is called grace. Turn with me to Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. I'll probably read just one through nine for the sake of time. If you've been here for a while, it's in a, here meaning perimeter for the last couple of years, you know that this is one of my favorite texts in all of Scripture. And, and I know I probably pull it out more than, than most, but this is the passage that I go back to over and over and over again in my life to preach to my own heart It's not about me, it's not about my performance, it's about the grace and the mercy and the love of God through Jesus. Listen to these words, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, if you've never underlined or circled those words, do that. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. See, we operate out of this hardwiring that God is good and he owes me. Or really better said, God owes me because I'm good. And what this passage tells us, you read those first three verses of Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, and it blows any goodness out of the water. It says things like that we were dead in the trespasses of our sin. And the we is all-inclusive. Every person who's ever lived on the face of the earth, we were dead. See, listen, the issue of the human condition is not an issue of that we're wrong and need to be made right. And it's not an issue of that we're bad and need to be good. It's not that we're immoral and need to be moral. It's not that we're not trying hard enough and we need to try harder. The issue of the human condition is that we're dead and need to be made alive. And we have no ability to resurrect ourselves. God has to do that by his grace. 
It even says things like that we follow the prince of the power of the air because here's why. There's only two teams in this game of life and everybody's on the playing field. There are no stands. There is no stadium. It's just a field and we're all playing and it's either team Jesus or team Satan. And I never considered myself before I knew Jesus as a Satan worshiper. But according to scripture, I'm either following Christ or by default, I'm following the one who is opposed to Jesus. And then it says that we are by nature children of wrath, deserving the just wrath of God because that's what sin deserves. The reason God says these things to us is because not because he doesn't love us, but because he's just. And he is a holy God. And although he loves us and created us for him, we cannot be with him because of our sin. And sin warrants judgment, wrath. But then verse 4, my favorite verse in all of Scripture, but God. Listen, it does not say, but Jeff. But Jeff getting his act together and really improving his life. And yeah, he, you know, he had a great little resume going for a while and then he went off to college and he kind of blew it for a while and partied too hard. And then he came back and got involved in a campus ministry and he really got his morality meter up. And now, now he's good with God. No, no, no. It was never that. Ever. It was always the grace of God, never based on performance. And it was always by God opening my eyes and your eyes, if you know Jesus, to the grandeur of his grace and his love through the sacrifice of Christ for you. Jesus doing what we can't do. Jesus living the perfect life, achieving the perfect standard for us. Jesus dying the death that we deserve, receiving the wrath of God instead of on us, it's on him. And Jesus defeating the penalty of sin, which is death itself, for us. So that through faith in him, we have victory. Here's what we need to understand. If you like to fill in blanks, this is your time. We have to understand something. We are not good. And God does not owe us anything. And that's with one little caveat. God actually does owe us one thing. And it was in verse 3, the wrath that sin deserves. But we have to understand this. We will not begin to, to, uh, to understand and be consumed with the grace of God if we don't understand this truth. That we're not good. Left unto ourselves. And God doesn't owe us anything. Secondly, here's the good news. But God. But God is good. And he's given us everything. And you may say, given us everything, what do you mean? I, I don't feel like I have everything. There's circumstances in my life that are really horrible right now. What do you mean he's given us everything? Here's how God has given us everything. He's given us himself. The purpose of my existence, the purpose of your existence is to be with God. He created us for his glory, to enjoy him forever. And because of sin, we can't do that until we enter back into right, right relationship with him through Christ. And when we do that, we, it's not that we get a better life. It's not that we get better circumstances. It's that we get God. We get him, the, the one our souls, the very one our souls were made for. And so then we get this understanding, this picture of God. Is it the very God who had every right to smite us? To pour out his wrath on us has instead gone in our place and instead has poured out grace on us, giving us everything we don't deserve. Louis C.K., I know I keep quoting him. He would be amazed that he's being quoted in church. He says this about the, the plane flight deal. 
He says, man, when we're flying, we should be constantly, the whole time we're in the air, we should just be going, whoa, this is crazy. How? How is this? This thing weighs tons and tons and it's flying. And I thought about that. And I've had those thoughts, by the way. I've been in a plane. I'm like, this is just crazy. I don't like this. This is nuts. But I thought about that and I thought, you know what? That should be true of the cross. If you're a Christian, if you follow Jesus, man, it should be like a daily continual thing that we're looking at the cross, understanding who we are and what we deserved. And we're just looking at the cross and we're just going, whoa, this is amazing. This is unbelievable that Jesus would do this. And, and we're asking the same questions that we would on a plane. How? How? And, and a question that you probably wouldn't ask on a plane, but, but why? Why would God do this? And verse 4 tells us, but God, listen to the words. Don't let them run through your head and just dismiss them. Listen, but God, being rich in mercy and with the great love with which he has loved us, has made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Why? Mercy, love, grace. It's all about God. It's all his work. Now, you may ask, don't we have a right to grumble? Yeah, I mean, there's things that are hard in life, absolutely. Many of you are walking through very hard things. I'll say this, on one hand, grumbling dissipates in the presence of grace. It goes away. The more we're enraptured with God's grace, the less we grumble. But there's hard things in life, and I don't want to dismiss that. And so I hope you'll come back next week, trying to set you up for Randy's second part next week, because he's going to address this. He's going to address how can a God of grace, who's so good, allow such bad things, and not just allow them, but purpose them. I hope you'll join us next week. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for this grace that we get to just continually dive into and think about. Try to understand. On one hand, we're amazed by it. On the other hand, we keep just trying to figure it out, that you would love us the way that you do, that you would pour out mercy and love and grace on, the way, on us the way that you do. When we are so quick, we are people who are so quick to, to shun you. To love things in place of you. To make our lives about our glory and not your own. And yet you are so gracious. God, would you, would you teach us? Would you take what has been said today and whatever has not been from you, would it be forgotten? But what has been from you, would you press it deep into our hearts? Would you do your work? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen listening to the Perimeter Church podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.